This is Van Color. Hey folks, my name is Mo Amir and this is Van Color, British Columbia's bonafide culture and politics TV talk show right here on Check and Check Plus. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Tonight we have a very special show for you as we're dedicating the entire program to our blockbuster guest. She is a former BC Crown prosecutor who served as the twice elected member of parliament for Vancouver Granville from 2015 to 2021. The former attorney general and minister of justice for Canada and a former regional chief of the BC Assembly of First Nations, her political memoir, Indian in the Cabinet, is now available wherever books are sold. She is the honorable Jody Wilson-Rabel. Jody. <laughs> wow, Blockbuster, that's a what pretty What an honor. <laughs> oh, it's, uh, thank you for having me back and uh, yeah, I appreciate it. It's a pleasure to see you. I have to ask you right off the bat though. Yeah. In your book, Indian in the Cabinet, in the prologue, you talk about this meeting that you had with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau at the Fairmont Pacific Rim. And it's just the two of you. And at some point, I think at the start of the meeting, he walks up to a sculpture or a statue in the middle of the room and he chops at it and punches at it as if he's like shadow boxing <laughs> did this happen is that real i did write about that that is true <laughs> <laughs> it was looked like it was plastic or and it turned out to be or sorry it looked like it was glass and it turned out to that's be weird plastic. right um i was a little taken aback given the serious reality of um the meeting that we were having so yeah it was weird yeah <laughs> Is this one of the things where if he's presented with this, he's going to say that, you know, this is just something that happens where two people can experience the same event very differently? Uh, well, I've never ascribed to that description about how about people experiencing things differently. In fact, I have a T-shirt that you know, rebuts that. Um, what is the rebuttal? <laughs> it's actually kind of making fun of it. It just says I experience things differently, and then it just says no or something like that on it. But I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know. I imagine I don't know if the prime minister has even read this book or been informed or briefed about it. But uh, that's what happens. He's read it. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> so the book, Indiana. Indian in the cabinet, it's really the self-discovery and your journey of realizing that this Trudeau Liberal Party promise of doing politics differently is a sham. And one of the things that really stood out to me is when you stood up in the House of Commons, I believe it was February 20th, 2019, and you basically made your case that you wanted to speak your truth. It was a very powerful moment in Canadian politics. And afterwards, you texted your husband, Tim, and you had a back and forth with him and you texted him and I want to get this quote correct. You said, I am just tired of f***ing around. Is that kind of the problem with the Trudeau government that they promise these transformative changes, but when you look at their actions, ultimately they're just kind of f***ing around? Well, I mean, a number of things. My mother um, doesn't like the swear words in my book, but that is exactly verbatim the text that I sent to Tim. Um, I mean, I think we need to contextualize it. That was a day where I did stand up in the House. This was in the throes of the SNC-Lavalin scandal. Mm -hmm. I had been going through like weeks of back and forth and 
I was at that point trying to or imploring the government to do the right thing, which in my mind was to tell the truth and to start to remedy the challenges that have been presented in terms of SNC and prosecution. And so yeah, I was kind of fed up and I just stood up in front of what you say is the nation and the House of Commons and and said that I wanted to speak. Um, So that's how I felt in that moment. Mm -hmm. Um, There were other moments that I felt that way, but to cast that as a reflection of my feelings about the entirety of my government experience is not not the case. I mean, things um, initially, like I truly still believe in doing politics differently. Mm -hmm. Um, That's why I signed up from my experiences. But Indian in the Cabinet tells of my experience being an Indigenous leader going into mainstream federal politics and and telling the the stories and my experience for other people to learn from. Mm -hmm. Things changed over time with the government that I was a part of, promised fell off the table mm-hmm. the reality of saying we're going to do politics differently actually didn't turn out to be what we did there were a lot of um, falling back into patterns of hyper partisanship and and you know politics by polls that type of thing and that for me was incredibly frustrating yeah and so I want to touch on that a little bit because one of the things that really surprised me in the book was how open you were about actively being discouraged from carrying out your mandate as the Attorney General and Minister of Justice. And you bring up this one example where obviously you are very committed to uh, moving forward on the files of minimum mandatory penalties and other Indigenous rights issues. And at one point, a official in the Prime Minister's office comes to you and says, no, 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 we can't work on these justice issues because the Prime Minister just embarrassed himself in India. And I'm obviously scratching my head thinking, how are those two things related? But it almost felt like one of the one of your indictments is that this government and the Prime Minister himself cared about brand above all else, including fulfilling promises. Mm-hmm. Is that a fair assessment? Well, I, I, I mean, I think of it in a number of ways. I, I, I mean, I understand politics, and I understand the reality of of branding. I mean, I was a member of the Liberal Party. Um, I think that um, our world, our society, is just overly focused too much so on branding and right. and um, perceptions or what other people think. I think what frustrates me, and, and it wasn't always the case, I mean, as a government in the beginning, we did do a lot of substantive things, Mm -hmm. Um, game changers that have transformed the country, whether that be in terms of medical assistance in dying or cannabis and other justice related things that I was involved in. But over time, I found (laughs) that the branding or making decisions based on what the polls say came into being more prevalent in our discussions. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, well, one, I think that's wrong. And I think that it is the responsibility of people who are elected, if they make promises, to fulfill those promises and do what they say they were going to do and be able to separate um, the reality and the responsibility of leadership and make 
make decisions and not just be focused on branding or what you look like or getting reelected. That's problematic and that's the distinction that we need to make in terms of people that we put and trust in leadership roles. I guess where I get confused is that ultimately good branding means that you are delivering on your promises, you know? I'm in in the business world, if you're a, a mid-level car company, and you're making certain promises, as long as you deliver on them, that's good for the brand. So I get really confused about where not fulfilling the mandate that you were elected on as a government is good branding. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think that there, and I, and this isn't simply the the government that we have right now in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. I imagine it, uh, it has befallen lots of governments in the past. I know it has. Um, there's a point at which, though, that there is a time to do the right thing. I think that's always, um, it always is the right time to do the right thing. But when we get to a place, which I think we are to a great degree on many issues, including Indigenous issues, mm-hmm. um, maybe major criminal justice reform issues is that we um, are performative. We put Mm. um, uh, image, um, we set aside substance. Because that's so much easier. (laughs) It it is a lot easier. And on the issues, um, the major issues that I came into politics around, and that's indigenous issues and justice and inclusion and equality, um, those are hard things. Those are hard issues to grapple with, but we have to. We can't just simply set them aside or think that by putting a flag at half-mast or giving money um, to something without doing the hard work and the transformative policy and law changes, Mm -hmm. that that's good enough. It's not. The transformative changes that I signed up for on many files haven't been done yet. Right. You also write about how executive control is really quite centralized in the prime minister's office, often with people who are unelected. You talk about being the attorney general and minister of justice, but not having a direct line to the prime minister. Mm. You talk about relationships within cabinet being controlled by the prime minister's office. And you talk about how you were effectively gaslit just for trying to pursue your office's mandate, the mandate that your government was elected on. How much of your frustration is directed towards the actual people in those offices, in the prime minister's office, and I'm talking about Katie Telford and Jerry Butts and, of course, the prime minister himself, and how much of it is just the structure of how the executive branch is in the Canadian parliamentary system? Yeah, I mean, I, I I do not have any frustration towards individual people. I mean, the reality of what I experience, and I imagine this is the experience of many ministers in the past, um, and including when I was in government, other ministers, um, that centralization of control in unelected people is wrong for our democracy. The implications of that for our democracy are vast, and we have to be vigilant about how and understand how decisions are being made. So, yeah, it frustrated me. I wanted to have conversations with my colleagues. I wanted to be able to, um, as the Attorney General, to call the Prime Minister when an issue came about and not have to go through Mm -hmm. 10 days of trying to get a meeting, as an example. Um, But this is a question about the systemic realities in our institutions and how power can be galvanized within, uh, between and among unelected people in the Prime Minister's office and how we... um, think about that, if that's a good thing, I don't think it is, and we need to put in place measures of transparency 
transparency and accountability that don't necessarily exist, but in this case, what this government promised but didn't follow through with. Right. And for me, as the Attorney General when SNC came about, that was an issue. It was somewhat different because I had the legal authority to make the decisions irrespective of what anybody else had said to mm. me. That's where the pressure came. That's what I talk about in the book. Um, but those other decisions. I mean, imagine people sitting around a table having discussions and not necessarily having any accountability around it. And this is talking about cabinet confidences, which I understand the need for. Yeah. But how far does that cabinet confidentiality go in terms of potentially making bad decisions or making decisions that are um, not necessarily um, appropriate or where wrongdoing can happen? We need to recognize and understand that reality right and i think that's an excellent assessment of of how things are structured in the parliamentary system but a little frustration with the prime minister well i'm frustrated in the fact that we could have done so much more like the promises that were made were entirely achievable sure. with a huge amount of hard work and like back to the other question it's related um MPs are elected. I mean, I was proud to serve Vancouver Granville, 100,000 plus residents for six years. Mm -hmm. We're elected to represent the people who voted for us, all of them, or didn't vote for us, but all of them in Ottawa. Yeah. The problem with our um, democratic system and the centralization of power or lack of transparency and accountability is that individual members of parliament, backbenchers, are cast aside or pushed away and only used for their votes um, and they vote along party lines. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of things that need to be um, deconstructed or looked at in a, in a way that actually recognizes how decisions are being made and how individual members of parliament are essentially being left out of that decision-making right. process. So something happened at the end of the last, I guess, legislative session before the election. Lots happened. <laughs> <laughs> something happened that, that kind of caught my attention. And it yeah. was a former colleague of yours, the former NDP MP for none of it, Mumalak Kakak. She gave this really emotive speech mm. about how the House of Commons was not a welcoming place and how she experienced systemic racism and discrimination. And as I was reading your book, you even say that you put up with racism and misogyny. And by no fault of your own, it kind of broke my heart because I thought about how you as this high profile <clears throat> cabinet minister yeah. would face that. And if you're facing that, then what about someone who has lesser profile who's entering the halls of power? Yeah, I mean, I mean, a number of things, but I mean, in terms of profile, it, it does. I believe it doesn't matter um, what table you sit around or with what um, perceived level of power, influence, and authority. Um, marginalization, racism, and discrimination can still carry with you. Sure. Um, so, like the rest of the country, I'm hearing Mumalak, and and she's very articulate. She's an amazing person. I have nothing but respect for her. Mm -hmm. Speak those words about the systemic racism that she um, that are contained within the walls of Parliament um, and what she experienced personally. 
recently. Um, it, it does break my heart, but at the same time, um, thank goodness for Mumalak being there. Mm-hmm. And I would say my experience in Parliament um, was worthwhile. Yes, there is systemic racism. The halls and the walls and the procedures in the House of Commons are based on the experiences of many people that don't look like me, um, you know, white, older men, to be frank. And um, they, the, the experiences or how we conduct business and how we make decisions isn't necessarily welcoming to people of different worldviews. And I'll give you an example of something that confronted me almost on a daily basis. I would walk into my office at the Department of Justice. I'd walk past um, the photographs of all the previous justice ministers, mm-hmm. all of whom were older men. And it wasn't until Kim Campbell and then Anne McClellan that we saw women right. and my being the first um, non uh, or indigenous person, marginalized person being in that role. Hmm. Yes, you experience that. And, and the people, um, whether it be your cabinet colleagues, the prime minister or otherwise, embracing different ways of thinking, um, different lived experiences is something that people who have held power in certain ways for so long, maybe they don't necessarily realize it needs to change or are satisfied with the status quo. Right. So we continue to face that. I'm sure you face that in your life in, in certain respects, being somebody, a person of color, um, um, but yeah, it exists everywhere. And I guess I would say um, for all the Mumalaks of the world or people that want to run, um, I don't want my book or anything I say to be a discouragement from running. Mm-hmm. The only way we're going to break down the systemic um, racism and the barriers that exist and change the way we make decisions by embracing more voices is if people continue to be involved. So it's kind of a call Absolutely. to action to to continue to run um, for various offices, no matter what they are. And I certainly haven't sworn off going back into that place because (laughs) we need to change it. And sometimes- I'm sure a lot of people will be happy to hear that. (laughs) One thing you point out is that the Canadian system of governance doesn't really have the institutions to investigate alleged government misconduct. When I read that, my mind automatically thought, well, if they don't have the institutions to properly investigate it, then- government misconduct must be rampant because people know that they can get away with it. Well, I mean, it touches on something we talked a little bit about earlier in the sense that I talk about this in the author's note in the book. Um, I, I, as a cabinet minister, as a still, I'm still a privy councillor, have to take oaths and swear allegiance. And there's something called cabinet confidentiality. Um, the challenge that I found being at the center of power or government um, is that, um, I mean, we have committees, we can investigate things through committees, um, but the power is centralized around the cabinet table and certainly centralized with the prime minister in the prime minister's office. And there aren't necessarily any checks and balances on how those decisions are made because of the oaths that we take, because of the confidences Mm -hmm. that ministers have. And don't get me wrong, cabinet confidences are important in order to make decisions and take in account various pieces of information. Um, But at the same time, accountability and transparency is important. So what happened to me as the Attorney General, had I not spoken out about it and expressed my concern around um, uh, the challenges that the rule of law was facing and the independence of the prosecution, that would have just gone away and nobody would have known about it. How many times has that happened in our country? 
and I say this in the book, five times, 10 times, 100 times, we don't know. But yeah. I think it's an important conversation for us to be mindful of and to continue to have discussions around in terms of, of the responsibilities of our elected people, particularly the ones that are making the decisions um, that have an impact on all of our lives. Absolutely. Really quick question. You and I run in some of the similar circles. We obviously hear the same whispers here and there. I keep hearing that you're going to run for the mayorship of Vancouver. Is this true? Are you running to be the next mayor of Vancouver? I don't have plans to run to be the next mayor of Vancouver. But I I mean, I honestly, I have had many, many people ask me to and encourage me to. I love this city. I think the office of the mayor is an incredibly important um responsibility but mm. uh, that's not uh, in the cards for me i feel like a lot of dudes in particular are breathing a nice sigh of relief when they hear that well <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, we know those dudes are. <laughs> we are now entering the podcast exclusive part of my chat with jody wilson raybold jody thanks for sticking around i really yeah thanks. you're really doing the full shift well tonight. you know anything for you <laughs> i love that you call me by my full name like i said i feel like i'm getting scolded when you do that that's funny i don't i don't know why i do that but i think i always have since you can you're allowed to do that <laughs> Uh, we've been chatting uh, before the mics were were recording about you running a marathon. Yeah, you did athletics when you were younger. Have you ever ran a marathon, or is this? A first I have. Time? Oh, I've, have. I've been athletic most of my life. I yeah. was a competitive swimmer and track athlete, but I have done two marathons. Okay, um, and both. I mean, these were a lot younger. I think I was like my mid thirties, late late 30s um, I ran one and raised money for diabetes mm. and the other one I raised money for arthritis um, and this one which I'm doing the the BMO marathon in Vancouver on May the 1st I'm um, I've established a team called Team Daya and I want anybody and everybody to join whether you do 5k 8k or otherwise can I do sideline where I just you can watch from the sideline you can absolutely do that we're <laughs> we're raising I'm raising money for um, dementia and Alzheimer's. I know it impacts a lot of our seniors, a lot of our elders, and not mm -hmm. even elders. So, yeah, I'm really excited about it, and I want to prove that um, at 50 I can still run a marathon. You kind of went the other way with COVID. Like, I did what was the conventional route of stopping to work out and eating a lot and, and putting on some weight you you went full beast mode i well i kind of did well and initially i got into baking and i was sharing my banana bread recipes and then i realized it's people like you that affected people <laughs> oh, you've like been me eating banana yeah, bread I since was... i was <laughs> sorry no. but like yeah i i started i needed to get out of the house and i was yeah. fortunate that i was in my home community where there's not people outside and you can we were able to i was able to go walk and then walking eventually turned into to running and then I just became a bit of a healthy addiction for me. So, yeah, yeah, I love that. Mm -hmm. I also learned, and we're not going to say where, but I learned that we're neighbors now, so we're we are friends. I, th I think we're friends, Moamir, <laughs> and friends can call each other by their full names. <laughs> but you don't have to call me that. <laughs> Does that do people call you JWR? By um, like I, you see it in writing, but. I, Out loud, does anyone say that? Well, I found that um, political commentators, and I understand, they call me JWR simply because my name is too long to say. My husband would like to put JWR on election signs because putting my full name on my election signs was um, oh, an I'm undertaking. Sure. Especially when your first name is so short, but then your last name. Yeah. Like, so I, I find that people identify 
with JWR, um, which is fine. I mean, I just like people to call me Jody. So, you know, we are (laughs) friends, so you can call me Jody. (laughs) Aside from the initial run of baking banana bread and then getting into the marathon, just you personally, how have you managed during the pandemic? Because I'm always fascinated to hear about how different people are affected by this continuing pandemic was there was there a general theme or did it go in cycles a covid coaster as some people have called it yeah i mean i guess i've been on a covid coaster like everybody um i mean just managing the reality of different waves um but when i when covid first like back in 2020 march Mm -hmm. i remember it it was friday i think the 13th of march that we i was still an mp at that time very newly elected mp as were everybody um with everybody um we closed our office so managing to be an MP at the time, um, helping constituents to be able to navigate the realities of COVID, get benefits. Um, that was interesting in doing it all virtually, yeah. which resulted in a hybrid parliament. I think there's some good things to take from that. Um, on a personal level, um, you know, being away from, from family, isolating, um, having a mother that's immunocompromised um, mm. is just it was scary and I'm still very vigilant about not having anybody around her too much to share her chagrin being in her house most of the time. But yeah, um, yeah, we live in challenging times, but if anything, it has um, made me realize one, how interconnected we are Mm -hmm. as human beings on every level and how grateful I am to have support systems around and have a community that has has rallied um, to great degrees in many respects. So yeah. I think COVID has um, brought a lot of lessons um, to the forefront, mm-hmm. ones that we need to heed, and that's uh, around health, around um, how if something happens to somebody, it happens to all of us, and, yeah. and how we need to take care of each other. So. Um, community is a lesson that I've learned. And I feel like you're absolutely right that, you know, we are so interconnected and this really did come to the forefront as well. But also with that, a certain fragility was realized and that we take things for granted in terms of how we're able to see each other all the time or we're able to do that. Or even just, you know, I don't want to get into politics, but just the institutions that perhaps we take for granted are very fragile and they require constant nurturing and care. (laughs) And, um, you know, this was a big, I think, a shock to the system in terms of institutions, but I think even just in terms to the general psyche of of who we are as human beings, right? I'm not trying to get too poetic with it, but it, but it, I think a lot of people are different now as a result of this. I, I hope so, and different in in, in positive ways and realizing um, how, I, I mean, when I think about it, I mean, when people are confronted with fear, they react in, in very... Um, yeah, I turtle. Varying ways. I, I, tur- but I like, turtle with my bag of potato chips. <laughs> well, I love, I love salt vinegar. That's another debate that we can have, which is the best brand. That but, is, I'm writing that but, down. But it's, it's like, it's fear. It's fear of the other. And I think one of the things that I... I've realized, and I'm doing some work around this with many other people, is that we can't be fearful of the other. And we've drawn out into the daylight because COVID has affected all of us, how people, marginalized individuals, people that aren't part of you know the so-called status quo are impacted 
impacted more greatly by um, these challenges that we're facing. We saw it with a whole bunch of of um, racism yeah. <laughs> that we experienced and um, or that we saw drawn on on monuments in Vancouver. Um, so we need to be able to address that and not simply if COVID, when COVID goes away, um, just forget about those things yeah. because um, they're not going to go away. Do you think we've hit a wall of COVID fatigue? Like, especially in this last wave, I'm looking at a lot of people in my social circle. I'm not going to call anyone out, but I just feel like some people have just kind of had it and they're just like, I'm done. Like I, you know, I, I was actually quite surprised at the reaction at the gym closures. I mean, they're open now, but you know, people were very mad about that. And I'm just starting to hear it from people who otherwise and, and continue to adhere to the, the rules and the mandates, but they're just kind of done. And I've, I've, I know people who said, yeah, you know, there's a travel advisory that you shouldn't go traveling, but I need to, I need to get on a beach. Like, I'm sorry. And they've, they've yeah. gone on vacation. Yeah. And I don't necessarily fault the individual by any means, but I, I'm just starting to sense in our communities, there is just this real palpable frustration. Yeah, I mean, I do too, among my family circle and among friends, and I have had um, friends that have gone against our the orders that have been given and <laughs> traveled internationally. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a rule follower for better or for worse, and that frustrates me. Um, at the same time, I look at and I was part of um, Parliament when COVID started. Yeah, um, there is no consistency in terms of how we're approaching dealing with COVID. Yeah, um, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and not to be political, but there could have been something more that um, the national government could have done. Um, so we see a, a huge diversity in how we approach things. And I mean, Bonnie Henry and, and people, I, mean, I think everybody that's working in this area is well intended, but there's different approaches. So that creates frustration for my my brother-in-law that lives in Toronto, he's doing this or right. we're not doing this. And, you know, some of the decisions I think uh, um, could have been made uh, in a, a better manner. And, you know, people rightfully are getting frustrated because they're losing their livelihoods. They're, you know, mm. the only outlet that they have for well-being is to maybe go to the gym. Um, so, yeah, there's the inconsistency is the source of, of huge frustration for people. Are you frustrated at all? Are you, where's your COVID fatigue at? Well, I mean, I I would love to, and I mean, I have hopped on planes because it's part of was part of my job. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I I miss going to. I'd love to go to a hot place. I'd love to <laughs> see my friends. I'd love to, um, you know, be unencumbered and in, in hanging out with my nieces yeah. who had COVID over the holidays. Um, my mother is is you know two great degrees suffering from being too isolated, and I want her to have a social environment so um yeah it's it's frustrating i want to get back to some semblance of normal uh, but i think we're all going to have to figure out how we're going to live in a new reality mm -hmm. um uh, and be able to develop coping um or an ability to actually adapt to the new reality right last time you were on the podcast that was two years ago and we kind of talked about you being in this public spotlight 
for that for that year basically yeah. uh, i think you you were the canadian newsmaker of the year oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> a hot commodity really to you know to to, to get an interview or a soundbite out of have you had a, a a quieter life through COVID, and now especially that you're out of politics has it been quieter i mean i, I assume you've been working from home when you were in office through telecommuting yeah. uh, virtual parliament, but has it been quieter? Does it feel quieter? I know you're still promoting a book, but yeah, it's, um, it's different. I wouldn't say <laughs> that it's um, necessarily quieter. It's just, it's different in, in, in good ways. I, I mean, I was, I, I said this in other places, but I'm I'm in this position that I've never really been before in my life. Mm-hmm. In that I made a decision um, to not do something without having a specific path before me that was laid out by others, or yeah. that was my next stepping stone or responsibility. So I'm in a a really um, good place for me um, mentally and and in terms of trying to figure out what I want to do to make the most impact. I mean, I'm a social justice advocate. I've always have been. I'm passionate about governance and governance reform within Indigenous communities, but through my experience within our, you know, Canadian system. So I'm going to continue to be involved in that, but um, on my own terms in the sense that I can decide where I think I will be um, most impactful. And and I, I'm one that believes in callings and I know that that will come. I know that sounds pretty hokey to some people. No, but, I love that. But for me, um, and it's coming like there's there's things that are and we've struck out being the mayor itself. of Vancouver as one of those callings but yeah and I mean don't get me wrong like I had a lot of people come to me on the mayoral question and yeah. I think it's an incredibly important position um, with enormous responsibility mm-hmm. and I hope that many people um, not necessarily just for mayor because I know there's a lot of people that have put their names forward for mayor but put their names forward to be counselors and have plans. And for me, uh, I've always ran in for elected positions because I wanted to accomplish something and I had plan in order to do that. Mm-hmm. And my passion around indigenous issues, around governance reform, around um, you know, justice, um, the path um, to helping advance those issues even more um, is not necessarily through the mayor's office. So I have always been taught if people ask you to do things that you need to seriously think about it and and I did and um, I'll support some really awesome candidates that are putting their names forward and I'll always be involved in our city because it's where I was born it's what I love when you say support will you and I hope this isn't too political but like will you actually endorse candidates in the future like I know you kind of stayed out of the last federal election and that and that's fair um, but will you actually say I support, I endorse this candidate, or this candidate has my my vote? I, potentially. Yeah. Um, I mean, there. I'm trying to think back to the last election. There are people that asked me for their support. I mean, I'm sure. To be yeah. honest, there was um, I, dozens of MPs that wanted to get reelected that asked me for their for my support. Um, uh, in terms of people running for for mayor. Uh, or for count, for I guess council. for any. Um, yeah, my question is about any. 
I've had a couple people like say that they're thinking about running and I am a huge supporter of people putting their names forward and um, if they have a plan and know what they want to do and how they want to achieve their goals then yeah I'll support them Uh, you know never say never but I know that there are some pretty awesome people that have approached me that are thinking about running and I hope that they do cool Jody, that's all I have for you. I just wanted to see how you're doing and and I'm how good. life is. Well, life is good, and I have lots of things in the hopper in terms of work and what I'm going to be doing. But the marathon thing is just how we started this little podcast yes. segment. Because um, we live close and we're friends. Yeah. Um, I think that you should probably join Team Daya, and you can run 8K, you can walk 8K, you can walk half. Um, but you can help to raise money for a good cause. You're putting me on the spot. Yeah, I'm just putting it out there. I am not a runner, but I will walk it. Send me the date. I will be there. You you have a Peloton now. I have a Peloton. We'll keep track of each other there for sure. Uh, I just, yeah, I'm not a runner, but since you put me on the spot, and you know I was going to ask anyways. (laughs) Oh, you're the best. I love it. Absolutely. I would love to be a part of that. Thank you for that. Oh, my God. I'm excited. I will send that. And thanks for being here. At some point, we're going to have you back on the show, and we'll talk about some other things that are happening in the country or in the province. Yeah, I'd love it. Love it. Thanks so much, Jody. Thank you. Folks, that's our podcast. What a treat with our featured guest this week. She is a former BC Crown prosecutor who served as the twice-elected Member of Parliament for Vancouver-Granville from 2015 to 2021, the former Attorney General and Minister of Justice for Canada, and a former Regional Chief of the BC Assembly of First Nations. She is the powerful Jody Wilson-Raybould, and I am Moamir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. Thank you.